This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with British philosopher and author AC Grayling. AC Grayling joined me in the studio in Melbourne to discuss a range of topics, including humanism, the age of genius in the 17th century, as well as war. His latest book is entitled War and Inquiry. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. And you're listening to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. And I'm very pleased now to have in the studio with me, all the way from London, uh, AC Grayling. He's a professor of philosophy and master of the New College of Humanities in London. He's also the author of more than 30 books. One of the the books that he's written just recently and is out uh, very soon is called War and Inquiry. And prior to that, he also wrote a book called The Age of Genius, The 17th Century and the Birth of the Modern Mind. Now, AC Grayling is in Melbourne to discuss the origins and future of humanism. So while I have him here, I'm going to get him to touch on all of those topics and uh, and weave in a bit of a narrative here about his um, many interests and expertise. So thank you very much, uh, AC Grayling, for joining us. It's a real pleasure. So let's just start off with humanism, because uh, I think that's a nice broad point to start. So with this lecture that you're you're going to be providing or giving tonight, which uh, is in St Kilda, you're going to be discussing the origins of humanism. Now, you've written on humanism before, and, and I've seen some of your pieces on this, and I'm very interested, first of all, to gather your understanding of humanism and why it's necessary or needed as opposed to or it might be a replacement for religion. Yes, in the contemporary sense of the word humanism, it means a non-religious, secular, ethical outlook. And unlike most ethical outlooks, or indeed moral codes, which are even more stern sometimes in their requirements of us, it's more an attitude than it is a set of do's and don'ts or prescriptions, other than the one prescription to think for yourself and to take responsibility for how you act towards others. But the attitude it enjoins is one of compassion, really, of generosity and sympathy to other human beings until, that is, they they cross a line of some kind and, and show that, whatever, through greed or cruelty or something, they merit our condemnation but but our default approach to other human beings should be a generous one because after all it's not always easy to be a human being and lives can have shadows across them and difficulties and sorrows and we're all you know making an effort of one kind or another so that sense of fellowship really of community between people is absolutely at the heart of the humanist outlook that's the essence of it. And so it's about self-awareness, um, a certain level of your the sense of yourself and then also how you fit within the broader context or the, the broader humanity. But also you talk about morality and how that and ethics and how that fits in with humanism and, and that it really is um, a secular morality or ethics uh, that we can all create for ourselves. But really, as you say, the tenet is about considering your impact upon other humans as well. What do you think it, it really uniquely offers as opposed to religion? And why should we be thinking about this approach um, in going forward? Well, let's begin by distinguishing first between ethics and morality, actually, because they're not quite the same thing. The word ethics comes from a, an ancient Greek word, ethos, which means character. So when we're thinking about ethics, we're thinking about the answer we give to the question, what sort of person should I be and how should I live my life? And of course, that's a much, much more inclusive project uh, 
then the narrower and more focused set of questions in morality about what are my duties and obligations towards others, about keeping faith, for example, keeping your promises, uh, trying to be truthful, etc. Now, your morality might very well flow from your ethics, but there will be many more questions and much more about you as as an individual embraced in the ethical concerns that you have than just in your morality. And so it's ethics that really matters to the humanist. And the point about uh, religious moralities is that there is always a third party in them. Your obligations to other uh, human individuals is always carried out in the light of some you know, posthumous possibility and getting your brownie points for getting into heaven or you you act that way because you're expected to or or demand is made of you by a deity. In the case of humanism, it comes from just the fact of being a human being and respecting that fact in others. And also you're discussing, you're talking about um, the positives of acting morally, uh, but there are also negatives in, in religion for not following certain doctrine and expectations of behaviour. Is this humanism a positive approach to life as opposed to religion, which seems to be more um, in the negative? Yeah, the, the real problem with uh, religious moralities is that morality came late to religion. In fact, it's really only a feature of this of the young religions of the world, Christianity and Islam, and it's kind of bolted on in a way uh, and has a connection with the taboos and the regulations and the sort of discipline of living the life believed to be required by a deity. And so you you see these terrible conflicts and confrontations between different religious outlooks because each one thinks it has the right answer to the right way to live and it deprecates how other people behave and what they think and that is why you sometimes get as you look across the landscape of history the most frightful uh, wars and atrocities breaking out between people of different outlooks whereas humanism offers the whole planet a, a kind of opportunity in a way to think and uh, deal with others on the same kind of footing. Because one thing which is really central to the humanist outlook is a realization that we are social creatures, essentially social. Never we need one another. We need our friendships and to be members of communities. We need to love and be loved. We need to feel that we're cared for by others and that we care for others and it's on that basis and in particular on the basis of our ability to recognize how things are with others when others are happy and full of joy or when others are sad or in pain you know it makes a kind of claim on us and we can really enter into the feelings and concerns of other people which is what uh, constitutes those bonds between us and humanism focuses on those so it's around community really, it seems to be, and the bonds between humans. But let's talk about the individual humanist within this and how they behave. One of the examples that we've seen in philosophy um, has come from Jean-Paul Sartre, who uh, delivered a lecture called Existentialism is a Humanism. And the key there is a humanism. So broadly speaking, it's related to humanism, but it's not necessarily the humanism that we're discussing. But In that, he focuses very much on how the individual uh, can affect change and make free choices and and also that when he chooses, and I say he by meaning everyone, when he chooses, he chooses for all mankind or humankind and that 
every human acting in good faith when they're making a conscious choice um, is actually choosing for all of humankind. Can you expound on whether Sartre's view fits in with a modern uh, or contemporary view of humanism in the humanism that you're kind of describing at the moment? Yes, it does, in, uh, especially in the sense in which um, the argument always, of course, about any ethical outlook is that it runs on two legs. There is, on the one hand, the individual himself or herself and what he or she owes to uh, himself or herself. And then there's the impact on others and the importance of our relationships with others. In the case of existentialism in particular, the focus there and also in the related view in Camus and absurdism is the the terrifying fact of, of freedom, of autonomy, and the fact that you have to make choices and that you, it's not an option because the choices you make don't only impact you, they also, of course, impact everybody else. A little bit like the butterfly that's stamped. There's a kind of chaos theory element to this, which is why the rest of, the huma- of humanity is implicated in what you do. But from the point of view of the individual, the individual ha- has this very, very deep duty to try to think things through. This was the great Socratic challenge. You know, he asked people in his uh, Athenian community in his own day what they thought they meant by the kinds of concepts that they took to shape and color the way they act and relate to others. And he was sort of shocked in a way by the, the thinness, the shallowness of their understanding of what it was they thought they meant by those concepts. And his great demand of them was to think it through. And so the individual responsibility is to think things through and then, of course, on that basis, to make a choice. And that connects up with Sartre because the idea of authenticity, the idea of living a life which really you know, has a, a, a sort of genuine depth to it, arises out of the fact that you have to. It's an obligation that you have as a, a radically free being uh, to make that choice. And let's talk a little bit about the humanism and its history. How have we got to this point in terms of the development of humanism? Because as it says in the title, there's the origins of humanism. And I'm wondering if there's a moment of a crossover in your book about the 17th century and the age of genius and the development of reason and method in scientific analysis and that that idea of looking outside of yourself and not thinking of yourself as the, the centre of the universe. Are there any commonalities or points of um, interception at that 17th century point? And, and where has it come from originally? Well, uh, right at the outset, I said in the contemporary sense of the term humanism, it is, etc., etc., a non-religious ethical outlook. This is because the word humanism was coined and applied in the Renaissance period by people who, in their rediscovery of the great works, the philosophy, the outlook, the poetry, the mindset of classical antiquity, were reapplying it and refreshing their view of the world through that newly polished lens of understanding. And so there were plenty of people, like, for example, Erasmus, who were religious still, but who adopted this new way of looking at things. And the the key thing was this, that in the period prior to the Renaissance, in the medieval period, the focus of everybody's attention was on the afterlife, on getting through this veil of tears and escaping into the light, you know, when you were dead. What the Renaissance discovered was that this world is full of value. And so by turning attention to life in the here and now, in the present, between cradle and grave, uh, they they were uh, recapturing the sense of what it is to live, to be alive, to be human, that the philosophers, the thinkers, the poets of, of antiquity had. So 
the word humanism there directed attention to human experience, not the divine, even though it was still in the framework of a religious outlook. But of course, the two are incompatible. And so humanism very, very quickly shed its religious trappings. And this shedding took place pretty well in the 16th and 17th centuries. And the reason for it is a complex one, but very, very briefly, it is that the uh, the liberation of, of thought from the trammels of an imposed orthodoxy. I mean, the, sort of in the Church of Rome uh, would kill people if they were heterodox in their views or challenged the way that the Church viewed the world and wanted people to think. And the Protestant Reformation made it possible for people to get rid of all that. And as soon as they'd done so, they started to get rid not just of uh, doctrine, of theological doctrine, but of ways of looking at the world which were theologically infused. And so the secular attitude arose. That, of course, is very closely allied to the rise of science, and along with it, a view of ethics and the way human beings could live and be, which was also free of that way of looking at things. And so humanism really began to emerge into what we think of as its contemporary sense now in about that period. Well, that's really interesting, because I I did kind of have this feeling that um well, in your book, in, in The Age of Genius, you talk about um, philosophy and science or the natural world really having a great deal of overlap um, and that they were both developing um, at the same time and moving towards this um, idea of rationality before we move into the Enlightenment. And you do name um, a couple of key philosophers, uh, René Descartes and Francis Bacon, as well as uh, the Frenchman Marin Messin, who you say, quote, is a kind of one-man-human one man internet server, which I found very interesting, and that really this um, proliferation of ideas and this move towards uh, establishing a method and a way of understanding the natural world, observing it, and then really decisively saying, well, from point A we can go to point B and then we can safely move to point C – this is really uh, a process that happens through technology, mainly through a technology of the postal service, um, and that there's this informal peer review process that's occurring. Um, in your uh, view, and and really looking at these key philosophers, do you think that um, that this is really the start of the humanistic outlook in science as well? I think it is actually because science is in itself a kind of of humanism um, because it is predicated on the idea that reality is is rational in the sense that one can make sense of it. It is something which is orderly, uh, which is governed by natural law, and that a disciplined approach to the investigation of it can really tell us something about it, and even indeed to some extent give us some measure of control or mastery of it, uh, as is the case, of course, with harnessing electricity and and, uh, developing medicines and the like. So it's very much connected with this. Terribly important, though, uh, to notice that um, some people think of humanism as being very human-centric and ignoring the needs and interests of other animals or the environment in general. So when you think about science as a secular humanistic project, uh, you see that through its fascination with and investigation of the natural world, it brings the whole of the natural world, not just animal nature, but but the botanical realm and, and the geological realm, into focus as something which belongs to our sphere of moral concern. We have a duty, uh, not merely to understand, but to be 
good caretakers of uh, or good partners to the rest of the natural world also. So that is something which, if you're thinking about uh, kind of humanistic ethics, the ethics of the, of the lives we lead in the here and now, then we think about its context, the world around us, and that immediately gives rise, of course, to the sense of the responsibility that we have to it. Absolutely. And that does make me think of um, the contemporary need for that focus. Uh, I interviewed um, a German forester on the show uh, about two months ago, uh, Peter Volleben, who wrote a book, The Hidden Life of Trees. Oh, I love that book. <laughs> Isn't it great? Yeah. yeah. And that that really um, sparked an interest of mine in the idea that trees aren't really these passive things that sit there and suck up water and, um, you know, process carbon, but they're actually really uh, networks and establishing relationships between uh, species and between family and that perhaps we should be thinking about the natural world especially um, things that we think may not have a brain or a a clear sense of themselves um, that we should also be when we're acting thinking about our impact upon those do you think that that is one of the core benefits of humanism in the 21st century and what it could actually do for our approach to thinking about living things yes very very much so because of course it's a a premise of the religious attitude towards the world that it was provided to us for our use for our exploitation you need only go back to the book of genesis and see you know know, here's all the stuff that you can you can cut down and kill and eat and and on. And the idea of being uh, dependent upon the natural environment around us, of living in it, of being part of it, of being a partner to it, I think is really, really key and should be a, a great feature indeed of our our ethical outlook and our action. And I remember when I was reading that, that book and so enjoying it, there was a moment where I sort of gasped actually because I remember years ago giving a talk about how the um, religious mindset might have arisen among our forebears. And I used the example of how when you're walking on your own in a forest and you stop in the silence or near silence and you hear the susurration of the leaves and, you know, there is a kind of mysterious sense of, of life going on around you, not merely vegetable life, not, not something reductively understood. And reading that book made me think, yes, well, the life is real life. There's communication going on. There is sense of some kind of vegetable community at work here, you know. And this brings to mind, of course, all those theories like Gaia and the great connectedness of all life in our world. I mean, you think of the way human beings have trampled on it and despoiled it and poisoned it and really sort of made use of it in in terrible ways. I mean, wounded the very face of the planet by digging at it. Uh, And then you think, well, that's very like dirtying up your own home where you live. And certainly when you're conscious of the fact that there is this great intricacy of life connected from the smallest things to the greatest things out there, and we're part of it, and that we haven't yet really fully realised how we should behave towards it, it really does become part of the ethical. Absolutely. And it perhaps challenges our our stereotype of a hierarchy of life and humans being at the top of it. Very much so, yes. I mean, all those great metaphors of the great chain of being. Uh, you know, this is a point I make in the Age of Genius book, is that right up until the very beginning of the 17th century, for almost all of human history, and with very, very few exceptions, there were one or two exceptional individuals indeed in antiquity who realised this, but everybody thought we were at the centre of the universe and at the pinnacle of creation. 
And in the year 1600, if you looked at the night sky, what you saw were the great heavenly bodies revolving around you. But by the end of that century, when you looked up in the sky, you saw these vast, vast distances of space. And these little points of light were just suns like your own sun, even indeed clusters of suns like your own sun. And that way of looking at things is so different and so vertiginous when you think of the great abysses of time and space involved that you cannot any longer have the arrogance to think of yourself as being the key point in the great narrative of space and time. So that was the that's what forged the modern mind really, that a dramatic shift of perspective in the way that we see things. Well, that's a lovely segue now into your new book, um, War and Inquiry, because we're talking here about um, the importance of protecting uh, one another and looking after one another and being kind and compassionate and also to not destroy our environment. And then in war, um, a lot of these things do occur and you might you know, have moments of existential questioning as to whether um, humanity really is com- compassionate and kind towards each other. So... In this new book, you're talking here about uh, a range of topics, but in particular, the causes and effects of war and the theories behind war, historical theories that have really um, influenced war. Uh, let's start actually with, with one of the theories which many people might be familiar with, uh, but probably don't remember because it, it might have come up in high school is the just war theory um, and where it came from and what the key tenets of it are and just how relevant is it for current day warfare? Uh, it's still very, very relevant indeed. Now, a just war theory is normally associated with the thinking in Christian moral theology deriving from St. Augustine. He was a person who first articulated this idea, although it was Aquinas in the Summa Theologica who uh, systematized it in a way. And of course, uh, uh, Christians are very self-congratulatory about this. Um, but there are two things to be said about why they shouldn't be. <laughs> One is actually that thinking about the ethical dimensions of war is much more much older than St. Augustine. You go back to Thucydides and you see him giving his reason for writing his account of the Peloponnesian War was that he said, war coarsens our moral sensibility. It gives the example of how the Athenians um, in the third year of the war uh, had decided to massacre the inhabitants of Mytilene on the island of Lesbos because they had broken their treaty obligations to Athens. But then they bethought themselves and said, no, no, we can't do that. That's, that's excessive. Twelve years later, when the island of Milos refused to submit to Athens, uh, there was no, no debate about it. They just went in and killed everybody. And in fact, in a rather famous um, uh, exchange between the Athenian generals and the ambassadors of Milos, the Athenians said to them, look, the strong do what they can and the weak suffer what they must. Mm-hmm. Just forget any talk about right or wrong. And Thucydides said, this shows you that we really have to be alert to the fact that war does terrible things to us. And indeed, there are earlier examples. But the reason why we attribute just war theory to the Christians is this. If you look at the texts of Christianity, they say things like, turn the other cheek, love your enemy, blessed are the peacemakers, those who live by the sword shall die by it, etc., etc. So it is a pacifist religion. And some of the great thinkers of Christianity, like Martin Luther, for example, were emphatic that it is a pacifistic religion. But when in the palmy year of 380 AD and the Edict of Thessalonica, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire, a mighty military empire, it had to find some wriggle room for smiting the enemy and going to war, hence the origin of just war theory. Well, you're right. The Romans were very much engaged in a lot of war. 
in terms of your uh, your understanding of war's effect on humans, and, and you're mentioning there that it can coarsen our morality, how has it affected individuals who are engaged or who are the actors of war? And I'm not thinking about the generals sitting at their desks plotting uh, strategies in war, but I'm thinking about those soldiers and combatives who are in war, engaged in war, and how that um, can actually affect human kind and their approach to others this is such a key question this one because it bears not just on uh, our understanding of human nature and whether or not uh, it tells us something about the propensity that all humans have or whether it's only some who can do terrible things uh, the, the um, question also is about uh, the, the the causes of war uh, is war somehow genetically programmed into human nature or perhaps male human nature and, 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 and here's the interesting thing. In conscript armies, such, for example, as the Kitchener Army in the First World War, it turned out that only about 20% of the conscripts were effective. 80% of the soldiers couldn't, couldn't point their rifles at the enemy and fire. They would either shoot into the air or even indeed shoot themselves rather than shoot somebody else. The traumatic effect of, of violence in, in combat uh, is such that it shows that human beings are just simply not made that way. They're being traumatized by seeing death and agony and wounds and having to kill people or, or you know, having to be violent is, is, is such a piece of evidence about the fact that human beings are really not, not uh, um, naturally warlike. And the 20% of people who are have the same kind of psychological profile as recidivists in prison, people who go back and back and back and back to prison. And what they seem to lack is any sense of remorse or any memory of, of a horror that they committed or witnessed. So it looks like this is a minority thing, this ability to be violent and uh, even indeed to want violence or to become habituated to it. Now, we make huge efforts to try to, uh, in wartime anyway, use propaganda to make uh, our in-group see the out-group as terrible, to demonize them, to make them subhuman, to make it okay to be cruel to them. And we've seen horrible examples of this, of course, in the Holocaust and, 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 and other recent examples of genocides. But we have to work quite hard at it. And in fact, a very interesting example of this is what happened in the Vietnam War. The United States military recognized how difficult it is to make all the soldiers, even volunteer soldiers, be genuinely effective in combat. And so they devised techniques of training, especially through the medium of getting a sense of loyalty to your own unit so high that you felt it was more important to kill the enemy than to let down your fellows. So they used these psychological techniques. But uh, soldiers, if they are trained to kill, need to have the ablution, the shriving, the, the blessing and the forgiveness of their own communities when they come home. And the American military didn't have it in the Vietnam War and had left these terrible psychological scars among veterans because their own home community didn't approve of the war and they'd been trained to be among the most vicious and effective soldiers that there had ever been in history, apart from people like the Mongol hordes and so on. And they had no, you know, no blessing was given them when they got home. That's a really interesting consideration when you think of, the, of, of what happens to the human psyche, how it can be manipulated and what scars are left on it by the experience of this horrible thing that war is. Mm. It makes me think of um, the power of ideology in this and 
in particular, uh, it reminds me of um, Adolf Eichmann, who very much constantly reinforced his point that he was just a cog in a bureaucratic machine and that he really had, uh, you know, no idea where the Jewish people were going when he was managing the railway lines. But also it then makes me think about the more ordinary uh, people, particularly there's an example um I think it was from Hamburg in Germany, and it's a very social democratic area, so one of the more left progressive areas. And though that particular group uh, was sent to be part of the ordinary police, and then they were attached to the Einsatzgruppe and the, the killing squads in Eastern Europe. And that is probably one of the most extreme examples, apart from the gas chambers themselves, of humans face-to-face uh, with other humans, the victim, and really um, the full breadth of atrocity in terms of the violence that, that ensued. It wasn't necessarily just shooting people. There were other ways that it was expressed. But as you say, there's, there is this 20% who really relish in it and then the other uh, 80% who are a, a whole range of emotions but generally not um, necessarily buying into it. But in this particular scenario, there are a lot of people who felt a group pressure to be part of this and to make sure that they were also doing their duty because that 20% who relished it wanted to see that they weren't the only ones doing it. And there was, I guess, a guilt complex, but also a pressure that existed. And perhaps, and this is what I'd like your thoughts on, is that a product of um, a masculine grouping? So when you get um, a group of men together and this is the type of activity, are they? Is, is there a different dynamic or a particular dynamic that exists in war between men? Or is it something else altogether? Is it the ideology that um, coerces people as well as their peers? What are your thoughts? Oh, I think you're right about this. I think you've picked on something which is really central and terribly important because, of course, the Einsatzgruppen were, um, you know, practically in physical contact with the people that they murdered because they shot them in the back of the head or they herded them naked into great uh, uh, pits and and machine gunned them there and so on. And this is very, very different even from the gas chambers of uh, Auschwitz where, uh, you know, there were prisoners who were doing the hands-on work really and they were at a little bit of a remove from them. If you think about it from this angle, think about bomber pilots dropping bombs on a city, men, women and children, old people, ill people down below them, 20,000 feet below them. These bomber pilots might never have dreamt of pointing a pistol at a woman's head and pulling the trigger, but they would drop bombs on thousands of of women. Distance makes it seem okay. In the case of the Einsatzgruppen, what made it okay was one thing that you put your finger on there, which is male bonding in, in groups. I mean, look at the comparison between a rugby team or, or you know, any, any kind of um, uh, situation where male groupthink becomes really important uh, factor in how the individual members of that group will behave. A set of people committing murders and atrocities, as the Einsatzgruppen did, Firstly, they had to stand up in the in the eyes of their fellows who were doing it. Secondly, the fact that they were all doing it made it okay. They were kind of forgiven by the fact that the other people were doing it as well. Thirdly, of course, they had been, um, h- however they felt the first couple of times they did it, when they started to provide their own self-justifications for doing it, all the propaganda about the out-group, about the demonized group, about the fact that these people were responsible for all the a catastrophe that had happened in Germany before the war, uh, that kind of kicked in as a rationalization. So you can think of a complex of factors here which supported people in that activity. 
Now, I'm pretty sure that some of the people in those groups were not among the 20% of the recidivist-minded. And what hell they went through subsequently on their own, no longer with the support of the group, in an environment where the realization that this was simply not accepted by the vast majority of human beings. You know, what was, what was the mindset like of people afterwards? Uh, and even indeed, if you were to talk to people who are members of a very, very tightly bonded uh, sports team, let us say, and ask them about their you know, sort of post facto reflections on what it is to be a member of such a thing, to try to get those those clues about, and it really is a masculine thing, this, about masculine bonding and, and about what, what, it, it, what, what it makes you do that you might be ashamed of. In fact, you could look at parallels like a, a bunch of rugby players getting really drunk and really misbehaving themselves and singing, you know, dirty songs in the street and waking everybody up and so on. I bet you they would all feel individually ashamed afterwards, but while they were doing it, something else was in control. And it's it's a, a, an important thing to understand this because it happens and it's happening today as we speak in the Congo and places like that where atrocities are still being committed as a result of the way that this kind of grouping of uh, you know the madness of crowds element really groups people into uh, organisms that can do these things right outside our moral universe. Yes, and so the, looking at, at individualism and the individuals and then the group, it really is the factor of the group because as an individual, as you're saying, you wouldn't be doing that as a lone actor or it would be very unlikely that you would be. Well, indeed, you know, as a society, we think of any individual who does such a thing as being a sociopath at very least and, and even perhaps a psychopath. So the pathology, we, we, we think of such behaviour as pathological, um, which you know, raises this interesting question about the way that the universe of war, the universe of conflict, is so different from our ordinary universe, changes the rules and makes people think differently while they're caught up in it. And if they survive it, you know, we've got a really interesting situation in our world today in which, um, you know, big military machines like the United States military now, uh, body armor, frontline surgery, so many more people now survive injury on the battlefield physical injury, but not, of course, psychological injury, which is why we now have an epidemic of uh, 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 post-stress traumatic disorder. And this is very interesting because that is revealing about what happens in the human mind and in the male mind as a result of these sorts of conflicts. So if we're then looking at current wars and your book and, and what its focus is, what are the causes of current conflicts? Because previous conflicts, they were slightly more traditional in the sense of it's a state actor and a state actor or multiple state actors, and it's generally driven by the leadership of a particular state. But we're at this point now where there are civil conflicts that, although they may involve governments, they also involve other radical groups or separate groups you can think about um, IS and in Syria and Iraq. Um, you can think about civil wars like uh, the Assad regime versus the opposition in Syria. How um, have the, I guess, the different ways of doing war and the different actors in war changed our, I guess, theories or concepts of war or have they at all? Well, they have both changed the way war works and what happens in the case of war. Um, but in some respects also, they've brought back into the picture ways of war making which had been uh, for a little while at any rate uh, squeezed out by how wars were fought um, up until about 1945 or so. 
the asymmetric warfare that we see now in which insurgent groups can keep huge military machines like the US military at bay for so long uh, has introduced this new factor or, or brought back into the picture this, this factor of um, the preparedness to commit the most awful inhumane atrocities. We see people in ISIS doing this, beheading prisoners and the like. Um, really a function, I suppose, a symptom of the degree of anger and fear and uh, sort of viciousness involved in the hostility that they feel to the forces they're fighting with. The, the great militaries like the US military, of course, are having to reinvent themselves. And so there's this feedback relationship which is introducing so many new and dangerous factors, like, for example, the use of drones to seek out uh, tribal insurgents in the badlands between Pakistan and Afghanistan as a harbinger of how unmanned vehicles and even indeed autonomous weapon systems will go out there looking for insurgents, profiling them automatically with no human on the loop uh, supervision of what's going on. Um, because trying to counter, you know, everybody is playing the game of trying to find the edge over however people fight at the moment. So trying to counter this means new ideas, new technologies, old ideas coming back into focus again. So the wars that are happening in the Middle East now are very unlike the Second World War, wars of great armies clashing on, uh, on a plane, you know. And it, it raises questions about how, if conflict continues, if we keep on fighting wars with one another, how, how it's going to end up. You know, if, if you think of these local wars always teetering on the brink of becoming much, much more generalized and dragging in more actors, maybe even you know, causing a great worldwide catastrophe again. It's not impossible. Seems like a sort of, you know, uh, a bit of over-anxiety, but alas, it's not impossible. Only think, the First World War, terribly destructive and wasteful of life, started as a little local difficulty, as you might say, in the Balkans. And the Middle East is a, an even more vicious situation than the Balkans was in 1913-14. So it's terribly um, anxiety-provoking, very difficult to read the future as you see the rapidity with which these techniques and technologies are evolving. And in terms of the potential overlap or, or bringing in of old ways of warfare, one example most recently has been in Syria where there's allegedly been a chemical attack. There certainly was some form of chemical dispersed in Syria and it's alleged that it was the um, the Assad government that did this. And it brought in um, nerve gas, which is a really extreme and very serious weapon that a lot of, uh, or most of, if not all of Western nations say that we disposed with that and we're not going to do that anymore because, uh, you know, we had mustard gas and that was the wrong thing to do. But now we're seeing that come back as as a way, also a very depersonal way of dealing with not only actual combatants, but civilians. What do you think about the development of this, these forms of warfare and weaponry, and also the religious element that we now have in our current warfare that exists? Or is it really a battle of values between Western, the Western world and um, radicalised Islam? Or is it something else? So are we making that a too simplistic way of describing the current situation? Um, well, on the first point, the point about the use of uh, nerve gas, um, when you're in a position of uh, threat in a time of great emergency and urgency, people will, after a while, reach for 
whatever's going to do the most harm to the enemy or stop them in their tracks. And this is the danger of war going on too long. This is exactly Thucydides' point. The longer the conflict goes on, the more desperate everybody becomes, the less concerned they are about any ethical constraints, and then they will do very, very terrible things. And the conflict in Syria has been dragging on for a number of years now, so uh, you could almost predict, uh, alas, that um, very, very terrible things will happen as a result. So that, that is one thought. The other thought is that religion, of course, has always been a major factor in wars right up to the 17th century. The Thirty Years' War, a terrible war at the very heart of that century, was a war between the Catholic and Protestant parts of, of Europe. And, of course, before that, the Crusades, before that, the conquest by, the, um, uh, by Islam of the Nestorian Christian Middle East and the Byzantine. Byzantine Empire, uh, they were all either prompted by religious fervor or resulted from the ideological clash of uh, religions. Religion gives too much license, really, to atrocity, uh, even indeed to the making of war. But what we're witnessing, I think, in the Middle East and in Afghanistan today is not a conflict between the West and Islam. It is a terribly, terribly tragic internecine civil war within Islam itself. You could see what's happening in Syria as a sort of proxy war between Saudi and Iran, between Sunni and Shia. And what happens in Western countries, in you know the uh, um, streets of Paris or in Brussels or in London or in the Twin Towers atrocity in New York, is actually a splash over. It's a by-blow of something which is terribly happening within the heart of Islam itself. And it's difficult to say what, what is it that one's witnessing there. Is one witnessing the 16th and 17th centuries as happened in the Christian story, the Reformation and uh, a coming to terms with a new world? Or, or is it not? Is it that the old way of thinking, the, the religious mindset, so intent on preserving itself and keeping its worldview alive, is it prepared to fight to the death to keep that? Is that what's going on? My own thought is that it might actually be, rather paradoxically to say this, given that you know the birth rate in um, uh, Muslim-majority countries is much greater than the birth rate in Christian-majority countries, but this might be the death throes of religion. It might be what we're witnessing what you see if you corner an animal and it becomes very violent and makes a lot of noise. So the volume might have gone up and the sparks might have gone up, but it might be because the globalizing effect of secularism has really pushed it into a corner. And that has been very prominent in Western society in the sense of many people identifying that they are agnostic or atheistic. Yeah. So then we come back to humanism, which is the great new way of, of approaching each other and the world. Oh, if only one could persuade everybody to be to be humanist. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> then, uh, you know, the, the, there wouldn't be any reason... The thing about religions is that they are very fertile in divisions, not only between religions but within them. I mean, think of Christianity. There are 22,000 different sects of Protestantism uh, in the United States alone. You know, so it, it would be just, uh, I, I don't know, a great, great, great source of peace and amity in our world if we could think of one another first and foremost as human beings and not... Uh, you know, cling to these identities which are so distorting so often, but so divisive always. 
Absolutely. Focusing on our commonalities instead of our differences. Thank you so much, uh, AC Grayling, for joining us and sharing so much of your expertise and knowledge with us on a, cr- a whole broad range of topics. It's been fascinating to, to hear from you. Thank you so much for having me on, Amy. It was lovely. And you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. I'm Amy Mullins, the host of this show on 3RRR. You can listen in every Tuesday in Melbourne at 9am till 12pm. And if you are elsewhere, you can listen online through the RRR website. Hope to see you again next time.